Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with Suzanne Spradley, and we are both attorneys with NFP's legal compliance team, and we're on this podcast to break down some of the benefits compliance issues that employers are seeing out there. Today, Suzanne, we're going to carry on with the single-payer discussion, and specifically, we're going to dive into the CBO report that was released back in May on single-payer systems. So, Suzanne, give us a quick background on this. What does CBO even stand for, and what was this report all about? So, CBO stands for Congressional Budget Office, so we'll just refer to it as CBO. But background is that you had Representative John Yarmuth, who is a Democrat from Kentucky. He is also chairman of the House Budget Committee, and he wanted the CBO to just give an outline of the various issues that, that were um, driven by a single-payer system and how difficult would it be to implement one in the U.S., So if you're not familiar with the CBO, they were established back in 1974, and their goal is to provide an objective, nonpartisan information um, that would support the budgetary process. So there's been questions over the years on whether they're truly nonpartisan. I I think it really has been shown to not favor one side or the other. So I think that we can say that that this is a nonpartisan report that was delivered. Um, the report was about 30 pages long, and it really, I have to say, probably laid out more questions than answers, but it wanted to walk through what are the key issues that the lawmakers are going to face if they have to design a single-payer system. And we've seen various proposals out there, and they go, you know, they go through the gamut. And so I will say that really both sides could take something from this report. Depending on what side of the aisle you're on, you could still find something to support your argument. It was overall a pretty balanced report, and I think it had some good information. Great. So before we get into the issues addressed specifically in the CBO report, what are some high-level takeaways um, overall, your overall review of the report? Well, it does a nice job of outlining what are we trying to do with the single-payer system, and that's really to address the uninsured population, um, really to get to universal health care. And when we talk about universal health care in that context, that w- that's what we're talking about is access to insurance for all. So the CBO estimated that about an average of 29 million people who lived in the U.S. in 2018 were uninsured. So you see that I said who lived in the U.S. and not U.S. citizens, um, because within that number are a segment of those that are here illegally or not lawfully, as the CBO report uh, refers to them. And that equates to about 5.5 million. So the report seems overall, I think the biggest takeaway for me was that it supports a multi-payer system rather than a straight-up single-payer system, and we'll talk about that more as we go through this. Mm-hmm. Um, it also goes through the various countries and looks at their systems and, and um, gives some insight into them. I will quote partially from the report, and uh, because I think this kind of sums it up fairly well, although it's a bit underestimated, but it says, the transition toward a single-payer system could be complicated, challenging, and potentially disruptive. So again, as you read through that, I think that is a bit of an understatement. Uh, But it does point to the other countries. They say if you look to Australia, Canada, Denmark, England, Sweden, and Taiwan, those are countries that are considered to have a single-payer system. If you look to Germany, the Netherlands, and Switzerland, those are countries that have achieved universal health care through a multi-payer system. Can you just explain a little bit more of what you mean by multi-payer system? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a there's a report out by Milliman, or an article, I guess I should say, that looked at various multi-payer systems and looked at it in the eyes of this CBO report. 
And if you Google Milliman and CBO report, I think you could probably pull it up, but it goes through three different scenarios from least disruptive to most disruptive. So the least disruptive would be a situation in which many of the insurance mechanisms today exist and would continue to exist with the single-payer system just filling in coverage gaps and providing consumers with an additional option. So there would still be commercial insurance options, and many people would still receive coverage through their employers. Medicaid would continue, for example, for the low-income um, individuals and disabled. So an example of this would be uh, in Washington State, they have a public option that's been proposed that would reimburse health care providers at Medicare rates, so that's lower than the typical commercial reimbursement, but it gives consumers like a silver or gold plan. So this scenario would be similar to what would be in this uh, least disruptive. Um, it would probably work best in a state that had already expanded Medicaid and developed an exchange because it would be offered through the exchange. If you go to the next scenario, it would be the medium disruptive. And in that scenario, you would have the current programs, the current government programs would just be enhanced. So you would see a lot of Medicare Advantage plans, per perhaps, or, or plans that were similar to Medicare Advantage plans as they are today. People would have access to a basic basket of government-funded benefits. That would include, of course, catastrophic coverage. And then they could buy up to purchase supplemental plans that would access richer benefits that went beyond what the government plan proposed. And I would say that employers would have the ability to either buy into it or continue as they are doing so today. Um, then the final uh, scenario would be what we consider not a multi-payer system, and that would be the Medicare for All Bernie Sanders type program. And that's where all health coverage would be run through a single federal entity, no Medicare Advantage plans, no other kind of government program, just one single plan would be available. Right. Okay. So the first two options there, multi-payer, because there's additional elements that are sitting alongside the uh, government as a payer in the health system. What did the report address specifically? Well, let's start with what it didn't address. And I think the downside of the report is that it didn't address, to me, the most important factor of any single-payer system, and that's the cost and how they would finance it. And it said it couldn't provide cost estimates because there were just too many unknowns and it would be impossible to forecast the full impact. So a significant gap there, I would say, in the report and right. um, really something that is, as you talked about last week in Vermont, um, really can make or break any single-payer option. Right. seems to be one of, if not the most important driving factor in whether a single-payer system can be um, effective. So if not funding, what types of issues did the report address? Well, it walked through a host of decisions that lawmakers would face if they designed a single-payer system, and we'll touch on a few of those issues. We won't uh, touch on all of them, but it looks at questions like who would administer the single-payer plan, who would be eligible for the plan, what benefits could be covered, um, what cost sharing would be required, what role, if any, would private insurance play, um, how would payments uh, rates be determined for doctors and hospitals, how would prescription drug prices be negotiated, um, how, would, how would there be some cost savings, and how would the system be financed. So all of these factors would be questions that any single-payer system would have to address in its design. And all of them truly play, pay into, play into the total cost of a single-payer system and likely could impact really the quality of health care coverage that Americans could get. Right. Okay. So let's start with the first one. How would the government administer a single-payer health plan, according to the report? So different questions had to be addressed here. One would be, do they want to have the plan administered at the federal level? 
which would be similar to the traditional Medicare fee-for-service program, or by contrast, it could be administered in whole or in part by the states, which would be similar to a Medicaid program. So if we want to look at other countries, you would look to England for an example of a single-payer system that's administered at the national level, whereas Canada would be an example of it administered at the, at the state level because the provinces and territories in Canada are the ones that administer that system with federal oversight. Right. So in either situation, um, I guess, would it be the states or would it be the federal government that would be or somebody else who, who would be deciding eligibility for plans? Who's eligible for this? Right. So that's another question that has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And if it's at the federal level, obviously, they would have kind of one body of, of eligibility criteria. If it was at the state level, then state administered program, the states could establish residency and eligibility requirements. It, they seem to focus on kind of the big question being, or one big question being in, under eligibility is being whether the program would restrict eligibility to U.S. citizens and those lawfully present in the U.S., or if it would allow um, illegal immigrants or not those not lawfully in America to obtain coverage. So that's kind of a biggie mm -hmm. uh, and certainly going to be a controversial issue. Um, other questions that come up under eligibility are whether, for example, individuals can opt out of the single-payer system, and let's say they can opt out, would they still be required to contribute through some forced contribution, like through withholdings or taxes? Um, also, is what's near and dear to our heart would be whether those with employer-sponsored coverage, if available, would be eligible for the public system. Um, and so, really, in deciding that, the federal government has to weigh what is the cost of of covering that population compared to really the cost of the tax deduction that's, that the employer-sponsored coverage currently gets. I will say that one of the advantages pointed out by the CBO in this report says that if you allow employer-sponsored insurance to exist alongside a broad single-payer system, it could foster innovation among employer plans while retaining a viable fallback for individuals who don't have access to meaningful, affordable coverage. So that idea of of innovation being important in employer-sponsored coverage. We've certainly brought that up over, over time. It's nice to see that the CBO confirms that view as well, that employer-sponsored coverage fosters innovation. Right, and it gets back to this theme that we seem to be coming back to on our podcast is that if we have a, you know, the employer-sponsored model seems to be working well, um, why don't we fix the parts that aren't working so well, let employer-sponsored coverage remain and continue to be innovative and continue to serve a population that's pretty happy with it. Um, but let's move on to um, the CBO report's uh, discussion about covered benefits. Yeah, this is obviously a controversial subject, and there's always going to be winners and losers of, of what should be covered and what shouldn't be covered. Um, and I think traditionally you would think of it certainly covering those essential health benefits that are covered today, where it becomes more controversial or when we talk about new treatments or experimental treatments or technologies. And some of that's obviously controversial today as well, depending on who's making that decision. But if we look to other countries and how those decisions are made, for example, in England, they have an independent board, and that board is called the National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence, or NICE, mm. N-I-C-E. Nice acronym. <laughs> and they determine whether, for example, a new drug should be available. They perform this type of cost-effectiveness review, so uh, compared to the cost, does it really add additional benefits that's worthy of its coverage? And so after that review, they make that determination. So it gets down to that decision of who should make that decision, who should make that determination, and how should it be made? What are the factors that should be considered when determining whether something should be covered? Right. So what about cost sharing? Benefits is kind of the first part of that. What are, what are people going to be getting? But then also, what are they going to have to pay 
to be part of the system to get that benefit. Another question that has to be addressed, and you can see that again in the various proposals that are today. So the least disrupted would be, okay, well, let's offer the essential benefits as being offered today, and let's do it with cost sharing that's similar to the Medicare Advantage plans as today. If we go to the Bernie Sanders approach, which would be let's, you know, let's have provide everything without any cost sharing, you're going to have that really be very disruptive in many ways. It's going to shift those costs to the federal government, and so that money is going to have to come from somewhere, and it's going to come through uh, an increase in taxes ultimately. What's interesting is the CBO goes through and really outlines that evidence exists that people use more care when their cost is lower. So when you do drive down the cost sharing as the Bernie Sanders plan, you could expect to see an increase in the use of services and that would lead to additional healthcare spending. So not only would you be shifting the cost to the federal government, but you would be increasing the spending um, overall. And uh, again, that has to be picked up by somebody. So private payments from employers currently and, and individuals cover close to half of the nation's annual 3.5 trillion healthcare bill. If we were to eliminate that, so we're taking out employers now, we're taking out individuals and their cost sharing, it's going to all be pushed to the federal government, so there's going to be a significant increase in spending at the federal level, which would obviously, again, as I've just said, it would entail new taxes, income taxes, payroll taxes, consumption taxes um, are what is pointed out by the CBO. Another thing could be that the lawmakers would have to borrow against the, the national debt. Taking a step back here to talk about multi-payer and perhaps involving employer-sponsored coverage as well. Um, what would be the role of private insurance if we were in a multi-payer system? Right. So as mentioned earlier, the report does go through some length to explain why a multi-payer approach, which means you include the private insurance market, um, why that has its advantages over a single payer situation. Um, and they really outline this, and I'm just going to read through it as, as they've outlined it. They said, for one, the U.S. could build on its existing insurance market and infrastructure for care delivery. So it would help reduce disruption to health insurers, providers, manufacturers, and beneficiaries. We've talked about if you disrupt providers, and we'll touch on this more, you could really disrupt access to care. Um, secondly, the multi-payer system have historically had fewer provider capacity issues, again, um, because under many of these systems, they reduce the provider rates. And so in a multi-payer system, you have the private insurers that are willing to pay more than the government system. So you don't have as, as many issues with waiting lists and rationing of care. They also noted that without sufficient incentives in the single-payer system, through the payments they receive, providers could opt out of the system altogether. And then finally, the multi-payer system offers a greater choice of insurers and health benefits, which might address the needs of a broader group of people. So people would have options, for example. You would have multiple insurers to choose from. And the system might adjust more quickly to covering new treatments and procedures. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about the providers there. Another purported advantage to single payer is savings through cost controls. So according to the CBO report, how would provider rates, which is one cost saving measure that proponents of single payer point to, right. how would those provider rates be established? Wow. So this, this really took up several pages in the report and I will have to just summarize it. But if you really want to get into the details on provider rates and the different ways in which um, payments uh, could be determined. You can dig into the CBO report. It's very interesting. In summary, they say if they set the payment rates equal to Medicare, and that's what we've seen in many current proposals, as um, the reduction in provider payments would likely reduce the amount of care supplied and possibly the quality of care. So we've said that all along. 
that decreasing provider rates is going to impact access and quality. And the CBO confirms that in this. Um, they said that studies have found that increases in provider payment rates leads to a greater supply of medical care, whereas decreases lead to a lower supply. Again, it seems like economics 101. Um, if the average provider payment rate under a single-payer system was significantly lower, fewer people might decide to enter the medical profession in the future. Um, the number of hospitals and other healthcare facilities might also decline, and there might be less investment in new and existing facilities. So all of this as a result of the amount that providers are being paid. Um, and further, according to the CBO, the decline could lead to a shortage of providers, longer wait times, a change in quality of care, especially if payment demand increases because previously uninsured people um, now are receiving coverage. So, uh, you know, you've heard this kind of as repeat this theme throughout. Drop If you drop provider rates, you're going to drop access to care and possibly quality of care as well. They seem to suggest that the answer to this is, is to subsidize the cost of graduate medical education. That seems a bit underwhelming to me. I don't know if that really solves the issue, but um, that was their suggestion and part of it. Right. The idea is that if it's cheaper for me to go to school to become a doctor, I'm more likely to go, um, even if you're offsetting the potential amount that I could make as a doctor. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how that would work exactly. And that's also another subsidy, right? You have to think about the cost of subsidi True. subsidizing. True. Um, so great points there on provider rates and the CBO seems to hit on there. Um, we haven't really hit on prescription drugs or other methods used to control costs. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll leave that for next time so that we can give it its due. Um, and for now, I think the takeaway is that instead of risking this disruption of the entire current system to really cover that fraction of those that are living in the U.S. who are uninsured, um, we should build on the current foundation and just continue to try to improve quality and the affordability of our current system. Right. And that seems to be kind of the common theme that we're coming to uh, as a conclusion on most of our podcasts here, right? Why disrupt what we have going? Let's fix the problems that are out there and keep the primary system in place. So thank you, Suzanne, for walking through most of the CBO report on single payer. And we'll take a stab at prescription drugs and other methods used to control costs on the next podcast. Terrific. But as we like to say, for that's today, a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. 